0: Many years ago in London, there was a a well-known Methodist preacher by the name of Dr. W.E. Sangster. He was the minister at uh, Westminster Central Hall. By all accounts, he was uh, a godly man and he was a gospel man. On one occasion, he preached a very popular sermon with the title, Paul's Magnificent Obsession. He said that Paul had a magnificent obsession. His sermon was based upon two words of the Apostle Paul, found in fact in the majority of his New Testament letters. It is, of course, the expression in Christ. In Christ, Paul's favorite definition of a true biblical Christian. If you're asking this morning, what is a Christian? Paul would immediately answer, a person who is now in Christ. What a glorious truth. It refers, of course, to that wonderful, living, vital, loving union that we have with the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. We were once in Adam who fell, but now we are in Jesus Christ who has triumphed over all. And once in him... In him forever, thus the eternal covenant stands. Yes, in Christ, in Christ. And did you know that Paul uses that expression 160 times in his 13 New Testament epistles? Absolutely incredible, isn't it? Clearly a magnificent obsession. Now this morning I want to borrow Dr. Sankster's famous title because I think it perfectly applies and relates to another statement that Paul makes here in Philippians chapter 3. For as Paul comes to the climax of his great autobiographical account of his life and experience, in verse 10 he suddenly exclaims that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. What was Paul's magnificent obsession? That I may know him. And of course by him he means the person of his wonderful saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the astonishing thing is that Paul was writing those words not as a new convert, but as a mature Christian believer and an apostle. In fact, Paul had known Christ for 30 long years when he penned those words. And yet even though three decades have now passed... Paul's obsessive longing and desire were exactly the same. I want to know Christ. Well now as we take a look at Paul's magnificent obsession, we need to first of all take a look at the context in which it is found. And here in this uh, rare autobiographical statement of his life and experience you'll notice that Paul begins by looking back over his past life, verses 4 through 9. And then he looks to the present here in verse 10. And then finally he looks away to the future in verses 12 to 14. So here in this statement we have Paul's past, his present and his future. Now, it's simply the first two of these that we're going to just focus on this morning for the sake of time. I'll have mercy on you and uh, your dinners in the oven. So we're looking first at Paul's past. And you'll notice that this particular section is immediately introduced in verse 2 by a serious warning. Paul holds up a warning sign in the church. He says, beware. Beware. I'm sure some of you here can remember uh, the great Steve Irwin, that Australian uh, uh, crocodile hunter and conservationist, and how whenever he came across a a cranky-looking snake or a a cranky-looking croc, he would always exclaim, Danger! 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 And that's exactly what Paul is doing here, isn't he? he issues a threefold warning. He says to the church, beware. Then he repeats it, beware. And then he repeats it again, beware. A threefold warning. What exactly is he warning these people about and us this morning? Well, the danger was due to false teachers who had entered the Philippian church. The danger of false teaching and false teachers. And notice how he goes on to describe these people here. I mean, he's hardly complimentary, is he? He doesn't seek to curry favour with them or get round the negotiating table, even. No, no, he's positively scathing. He calls them dogs. He says, beware of dogs. Dogs. And of course, when he refers to dogs, he's not talking about those nice, domesticated, uh, fluffy friends that we have in our homes. He's talking about these wild, vicious, pariah dogs that roam the countryside, full of germs and disease, foaming at the mouth, snapping at your heels. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. These people, he says, they're not harmless, they're dangerous. They are mutilators. They are people who are going to cut you and hurt you and destroy you. Now why is Paul getting so steamed up? Why is he so hot under the collar here? Why is he so exasperated? Why does he... uh, become so scathing in his criticism of these men? And the simple answer was that what these people were teaching the Philippians was not a valid alternative point of view that you could take or leave. No, no, it was positively dangerous, it was poison, it was harmful, it was another gospel, it was another Jesus. They were distorting the true gospel of Christ. It was as serious as that. You see, these people were Judaizers, as they're referred to, or people who belonged to the circumcision party. They were Jews who supposedly had embraced Jesus as their Messiah, but the problem was that really nothing had changed in their lives, in their theology. They were still clinging to Moses and the law. And now they were demanding that these Gentile converts in Philippi In order to be truly saved, truly Christian, they must firstly become Jews. They must undergo circumcision. They must be mutilated. And then they must obey all the laws and the regulations of the Old Testament scriptures. It was another gospel. It was another Jesus. You see, basically what these people were guilty of doing was they were denying the sole sufficiency of Christ alone for salvation. It was a teaching of Christ plus. Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus conformity to the laws and the regulations of the Old Testament scriptures. And friends, once you put a plus sign after Jesus then you are left with no gospel, no hope, no salvation at all. Because Jesus Christ alone is the saviour. Salvation is of the Lord. It's his work from beginning to end. He doesn't need help from anyone else. We can't add to or contribute to his work in any way, shape or form, or we'll ruin it, we'll spoil it. He alone saves and salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And he's able to save to the uttermost for all time, all who simply come to God through faith and trust in him. Jesus alone, the saviour. Thank God we don't have these people coming into our churches today demanding that we be circumcised in order to be fully saved. Well, I'm thankful for that anyway. But of course this teaching is very subtle, isn't it? This teaching of Christ plus is still with us today, isn't it? The danger, the warning still needs to be sounded out in every church up and down the land. We see it in the Roman Catholic Church, don't we? With their insistence on faith in Christ plus the traditions of Rome... Faith in Christ plus baptismal regeneration. These things are necessary. And we see it also, do do we not, in all the cults and the sects that are available today. Literally thousands of them. New ones springing up almost every week. It's difficult to keep up with them. But there is one thing that is a failure in everyone without exception. And that is that Jesus Christ is never enough. He's never an all-sufficient saviour. It's Christ plus the Book of Mormon. Christ plus the teaching of the Watchtower. Christ plus this ritual and that ceremony. And then even much closer to home even in our evangelical circles, we are being constantly told that we need some extra special experience of the Holy Spirit in order to enable us to become complete Fully-fledged New Testament Christians. Christ plus the baptism with the Holy Spirit. Christ plus speaking in tongues. And this and that. It's another gospel, friends. It's another Jesus. You see, the basic danger that Paul is warning people of here in Philippians 3 is the danger of self-reliance, isn't it? It's the danger, as Paul puts it here, of confidence, having confidence in the flesh. In other words, confidence in something else other than Jesus Christ. And this, of course, was the very error that Paul himself had fallen into as a religious Jew, as Saul of Tarsus, in his former life. You'll notice how he brings this out here in verse 4. He's addressing these agitators that were disturbing the new converts in Philippi. And he says, you're boasting in the flesh, you're trusting in the flesh, you're boasting in circumcision and all these rites and ceremonies. Well, I might also have confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he may have confidence in the flesh, I'm also. I was circumcised on the eighth day, the right time. I'm from the stock of Israel, I've come from the tribe of Benjamin, that uh, uh, tribe that produced Israel's first king, Saul, the son of Kish. He said uh, concerning uh, religion, well I was a Pharisee, a Pharisee, the strictest sect of our religion, very religious person. He says, uh, I'm a, a Hebrew of the Hebrews. In other words, he was a Hebrew son born of both Hebrew parents. His lineage was the purest of the pure, and he could speak the Hebrew language fluently. Concerning zeal, look at my religious zeal. I persecuted the church, even unto death. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, concerning the righteousness, the righteous standard in the law, my life was outwardly Blameless self improvement. This was Paul's own estimate of his life. What more did he need? And yet, when he met the Savior, the Lord Jesus, on that Damascus road, everything changed. He was humbled to the dust and everything was turned around. He gives us his testimony, doesn't he, in verse 7. He's looking back 30 years earlier to that damascus road experience and he says but this was the great turning point in his life but what things were gained to me these i have counted loss for christ he's using an illustration taken from the realm of business and accountancy and bookkeeping you see the books are opened he's trying to balance the books And he's got uh, columns marked profit and loss. Every businessman knows this. And in the one side, he adds up all the profits. All the things that he once relied upon to put him right with God and give him brownie points in heaven. He labels them, doesn't he? Race, religion, ritual, respectability. He piles them up one on top of the other. But then, as it were, he puts a line through them all, and he says, but what things were gained to me, these I have counted loss for Christ. And I count all things loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them as dung, as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul here is just like that merchant in our Lord's parable, looking for beautiful pearls. Paul has all these treasures, these beautiful, ecclesiastical, religious pearls in his collection. He glories in them, he boasts about them, he gloats over them. But then one day, out of the blue, he catches sight of a pearl, the like of which he has never seen before. He's absolutely dazzled and captivated by its beauty, its glory, its delight. He must have it. He freely confesses all his collection is nothing but rubbish in comparison. And he willingly relinquishes it all that he may gain Christ, that one pearl of superlative price. That's conversion. That's being fully turned. It's what Thomas Chalmers once described as the expulsive power of a new affection. I love that. What a picture of conversion. The expulsive power of a new affection. You see, when the love of Christ comes in, then the love of self and everything else evaporates. It's a love for him that is so great that there is nothing in all the world that can possibly compare to it. Paul could now truly sing from the heart now none but Christ can satisfy none other name for me there's love and life and lasting joy Lord Jesus found in thee friends what are you trusting in this morning for your salvation is it Christ plus your baptism, your christening your upbringing, your ancestry that you were brought up in a Christian home, relying upon the faith of your ancestors? Are you relying upon some decision you've made in the past? Are you relying upon your church attendance, impeccable, here every week? Are you relying upon your Christian service? Do you think that these things are contributing to your spiritual standing and that somehow they're building up a treasury of merit in heaven for the last day? Or can you only say with the Apostle this morning, I count everything loss for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus as my Lord. Not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which is from God by faith. God forbid, friends, God forbid that we should boast, that we should glory, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Such is the danger of which Paul warns. But then secondly, he turns from the past to the present in verse 10. From the danger of self-reliance, he turns to the devotion of, that Christ inspires. And he says that I may know him. And as we've already said, Paul wrote those words 30 years after his conversion on the Damascus Road. And even though three decades have now passed, his desire, his longing, his obsession is exactly the same. I want to know him clearly Paul is not referring to some intellectual theoretical knowledge merely knowing certain things about Christ, no no he wants to know him it's a personal knowledge it's an experiential knowledge it's a relationship where Christ is real to us and where we are conscious of his presence he longs to know Jesus Christ in a deeper sweeter more intimate way. I think the hymn writer William Gadsby summed it up perfectly in that beautiful hymn. Oh, that my soul could love and praise him more. His beauties trace, his majesty adore. Live near his heart, upon his bosom lean. Obey his voice and all his will esteem. He's like Mary, isn't he? He wants to spend his life sitting at the Saviour's feet, just listening to his word, that I may know him. But you notice Paul doesn't stop there, does he? He doesn't leave it at that. But he uses the conjunction and. In fact, he employs it twice here. He says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings now friends it's vitally important that we don't go home this morning thinking to ourselves that Paul is referring to three separate individual things here no no they're all one and the same it's an explanation it's an expansion of ideas it's all the same thing You see, he's using the word and, not in the sense of in addition to, but in the sense of i.e., or that is, an explanation. So we could really translate the text like this. That I may know him, that is the power of his resurrection. That is the fellowship of his sufferings. And first of all, knowing Christ means knowing the power of his resurrection. Now, what did Paul mean by that? Well, he certainly doesn't just mean knowing the resurrection as an historical event that took place 2,000 years ago when Jesus was raised from the dead by the power of the Father. No, no, he's talking about our present experience as Christian believers. He's talking about the here and now. He's talking about the very power of the risen Lord that is working in the hearts and lives of every gospel believer to make us more like Christ. You remember how Paul in Ephesians 1 prays that we might know What is the exceeding greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his mighty power, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Have you ever stopped to imagine what power was necessary to raise a dead man to life? And not only to raise him from the dead, but also to seat him at God's right hand in the majesty on high in the heavenly realms. Just think of these NASA rockets and the power that is exerted there in uh, raising that capsule of people up to the moon. Absolutely incredible power, isn't it? And that all pales into insignificance in the light of the power that was exerted in the resurrection. And that same power, says Paul, do you realise, is now at work in your heart and in mine. It's already raised us from spiritual death into newness of life in Jesus Christ. We are alive. We are resurrected men and women. Glory to God. You see, the power of his resurrection is a saving power, but it's also a sanctifying power. There's a wonderful example of this in the first volume of uh, the biography of Dr. Marty Lloyd-Jones. Um, in his first pastorate in Aberraven, there was a man in the town by the name of William Thomas, or Staffordshire Ball, as people used to call him. And, uh, and William Thomas was about 70 years of age. He had lived a completely uh, reckless, sinful life. He was a drunkard. And he was a foul-mouthed individual. In fact, people used to keep away from him because of his foul mouth. He was a blasphemer. He could hardly string a sentence together without filthy talk. Well, one particular Sunday afternoon, he was in the workingman's Club in Aberavon, drinking away, drowning his sorrows in his ale, when he overheard two men in the pub talking about this new preacher who had come to the local church, and who was preaching that no one was without hope, that there was hope for all in Christ. Well, his ears pricked up. He thought, could there be hope for an old degenerate like me, like William Thomas? Well, it took him some weeks to pluck up the courage, but eventually he went along to the Sunday evening service and uh, a church member came and sat next to him And during the service he heard the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ, his saving power and salvation that night entered into his heart and he became a new person in Christ. But but William Thomas had a problem because for 70 years nothing but filth had come out of his mouth. And now of course he was converted, a new man, well he had a conscience about these things. And he tried uh, not to swear. He tried not to use profanity. But he was so used to it, it was grained in his very nature that he couldn't stop himself. Words would just slip out without him doing anything. And he was in a state of utter despair over this. And he was deeply convicted and concerned. He felt too ashamed to tell his pastor about it. Well, this went on for several weeks. And then it came to a head one particular morning. He got up out of bed. His wife had put out his clothes, a lovely wife, in those circumstances. And uh, he put his clothes on. And he suddenly realised there were no socks. And he looked around for his socks. He couldn't find these socks. And so he hollers downstairs to his wife, Wife, where are my blank socks? I can't find the blank things anywhere. And as soon as the swear words came out of his mouth, he was suddenly, utterly slayed and convicted and uh, depressed and cast down. He threw himself on the bed in despair and he said, "'Oh, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. "'I can't even ask for a pair of socks without swearing. "'Lord, cleanse my tongue, purify my tongue.'" And, you know, the Lord did. He suddenly got up off that bed and he knew that something had happened. Something had changed. And from that moment on, a swear word never left his lips again. Now you may say, well, it doesn't always happen like that, does it? And of course it doesn't always happen like that. Some sins cling to us, besetting sins, that maybe take a lifetime of mortification to gain victory over them. Um, But uh, it did on this occasion, and it can happen, because Christ is an almighty saviour mighty to save, strong to deliver. You see, he has come not to save us in our sins, he has come to save us from our sins. It's salvation not only from the guilt and the penalty of sin, but salvation from the reigning power of sin and ultimately deliverance from the very presence of sin at the coming of our Saviour. It's a threefold salvation. He breaks the power of cancelled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest cling. His blood avails for me. You see, it's the power, the power of his resurrection working in us, quickening us, strengthening us from day to day, enabling us to know victory over sin and temptation to overcome the world, the flesh and the devil, that we might be eternally saved at the last, raised up incorruptible. Yes, knowing Christ in this deeper, intimate way means knowing the power of his resurrection. But Paul doesn't stop there, does he? There's something else here. Maybe you were hoping we would stop at The power of his resurrection, that's glorious, isn't it? That's triumphant, that's victory, that's positive. But the fellowship of his sufferings? Well, we don't like that one so much, do we? We shy away from that one. That doesn't sound too pleasant, does it? And too positive. But if that's what you're thinking, you would be entirely wrong, because it's just as encouraging as the former. Because notice, it is not our sufferings. It's his sufferings. And notice also, it is the fellowship, the fellowship of his sufferings. In other words, what Paul is saying here is that when we suffer as Christians in this world, as we will and must, we never suffer alone. There is always someone with us, In the suffering, there is a fellowship, a communion that is going on with the Lord Jesus Christ. There is one with us, like unto the Son of Man, when we pass through the storm and through the flames. He will never leave us or forsake us. It's the fellowship of Christ in these sufferings. Do you know there's a beautiful example of this in the martyrdom of the two Margarets from Scotland? in the 17th century. You remember how the king had ordered all people to worship in the Episcopal Church over which he was the head and uh, the two Margarets, Margaret McLaughlin, Margaret Wilson refused, they wanted to worship according to their conscience according to the Bible and they would gather secretly in meetings and they were caught and they were made um, an example of the soldiers took them to Solway Firth, this bay in Scotland, near Wigtown, where they came from. And they put in two stakes when the tide was out in the bay. One stake further out in, at sea, the other nearer to the beach. They took the older Margaret McLaughlin, 63 years of age, and they tied her to the first stake. And then they took Margaret Wilson, just 18 years of age, a teenager, and they put her on the second stake and tied her, with the hope that when she saw her companion suffer, she would recant. Well, the tide began to come in. The water was soon lapping up to Margaret McLaughlin's chin. She didn't utter a word. She was quiet, meek as a lamb, like her saviour in suffering. And then the water began to lap over her head, The Waves crashed over and her body seemed to move in the water. It seemed to writhe. There seemed to be some sort of struggle going on. And the soldiers started to mock and to laugh. And they pointed to young Margaret Wilson and they said, Look at your companion. What do you think of her now? And Margaret Wilson uttered those immortal words. Think, she says. I think I see Christ wrestling there. Think ye that we are sufferers? No, it is Christ in us, for he sends none a warfare, which they must fight alone. I can't do a Scottish accent, by the way. It's quaint language, but you get the picture, don't you? I think I see Christ wrestling there. Do you think we are the sufferers? No, it is Christ in us, in us the fellowship of his sufferings. What could be more encouraging than that? And so knowing Christ in this deeper, intimate way means essentially knowing the power of his resurrection on the one hand and the fellowship of his sufferings on the other, conforming us to his death. If, and when Paul uses the word if, he doesn't uh, suggest a doubt, no, no, he means by whatever circumstances we may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, you may be thinking, well, that's all well and good for people like the Apostle Paul, this super saint, and these two women in Scotland in the 17th century, uh, these great heroes of Scotland. But you say, could this be true of us this morning as ordinary Christian believers? Can we apply this to ourselves this morning? Well, yes. Let me just close with this story. Uh, Dr Jim Packer told it some years ago, a story of uh, an old lady by the name of Mabel. She was 89 years of age. She'd spent the last twenty year, 25 years of her life on a bed in a rest home, a nursing home. Her body was diseased with Uh, all sorts of conditions, and she had cancer. She was totally blind, and she was becoming almost totally deaf. And a Christian man came to visit her one day. and He sat by her bedside, and he said, Mabel, tell me, he said, what do you think about during these long hours that you spend on that bed in this home, day and night? Oh, she replied, I think of Jesus. He said, well, well, what do you think of Jesus? She said, I think of how good he has been to me. As I look back over my life, do you know he's been awfully good to me? There are many in this home who think I'm mad. They're crazy. They think I'm crazy. They think I'm just an old fashioned woman with old fashioned ideas. But she said, That doesn't bother me, two hoops. She said, I would rather have Jesus, he's all the world to me. And that's not Paul, is it? That's not the Wigtown martyrs of Scotland in the 17th century. That's just poor, decrepit Mabel. What a testimony. May God grant that we may bear such a testimony in this year of 2023 and in the days that lie ahead if the Lord should tarry. May we have that obsession. May we have that longing, that desire to know Christ more and more so that we may know more of the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. For there is coming that day when we shall see him face to face. We shall be satisfied when we awake with his likeness. Change from glory into glory, till in heaven we take our place, till we cast our crowns before him, lost in wonder, love, and praise. He's all the world to me.